your defense must be informed by the offense. This is why every year when I was a CISO, we did our security planning. We would always talk to the incident responders, right? We read the Mandiant reports, the Verizon data breach reports, all the normals to understand what's happening in my industry and in my geography and my region so that we're not focusing on DDoS like it was 2011 again, but we're actually focusing on what's happening now. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. That's Chuck Heron, CTO over at Wib. And yes, that means he's a vendor. Wib are not sponsoring this show, though. I brought Chuck on because the topic we're tackling today is one I think is best understood through the vendor eyes rather than the practitioner eyes, and you'll see why when we get into it. We're talking about API security. Chuck has some real street cred, too. He's got a CISSP and a CCSP. He's a former CTO at a global fintech company, former CISO at a bank. In fact, former CISO at two banks. Is that right, Chuck? That's correct. All right. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for bringing all this expertise on down to the ranch. It's great to be here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right. So briefly, why don't you tell us a bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? I started in tech and security at a very large bank in Charlotte that will remain nameless and ended up getting a lot of attention within the bank by bringing up security issues with their new Windows 2000 rollout. It's a theme that I've seen over and over and over over the last two decades where we roll something out well before it's secured. And now I figured out, you know, over time and after everything settled down, like you could get paid for doing this stuff. You don't have to just be a difficult person that the executives don't like. You can actually get paid for being a difficult person. And in the fintech space where you're cobbling together all these offerings, like your modern banking core, your real-time core is probably headless and it's API driven. And your internal servicing screens run somewhere else and they're driven by APIs. And your mortgage platform is hosted somewhere else and it's driven by APIs. I get it. And so you're trying to understand and put a threat model together for who's doing what so you can build a baseline of what normal behavior looks like. And I have been evaluating the API security space and like I know what I want and I can't find what I want anywhere. The first generation of products, I think, defined the problem well, which is that rules-based defenses like WAFs and API gateways don't understand business logic. And then and now that we've got some experience under our belt, the basic premise is if you could do it all differently, knowing what you know now, what would you build in an API security platform? And what I'm bringing to the table is 20 years as a defender in U.S. financial services where I know what we need from a governance perspective. I know what we need. First line of defense, second line of defense. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not like the voice of the customer. It sounds like it. And it sounds like it's for good cause, too. Well, not to get too overly serious, but like we really do outside of the newness and tech and things like that, we've really got critical infrastructure and national security ramifications for APIs and API security. Yeah. Well, let's take some of this apart real quick. You've thrown a lot on my lap here. So first of all, I want to get across this idea that an API is two things. Number one, it's intended to be exposed. And number two is it's intended to get into the guts of the system right? Yeah, exactly. It is supposed to deliver significant computing results. That's the whole point of an API. So if it's designed to be accessible and public and designed to get deep into the guts, that to me intrinsically seems like the whole flaw in the whole paradigm from a security perspective. I mean, that's the problem in a nutshell, right? 
Yeah, you boiled it down. That's exactly correct. And so APIs expose business logic directly. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Right. When you break apart your monolithic app into a microservice architecture, you abstract all the technology details so the teams can run at their own speed. That, that accelerates the speed of change, which is, again, that's a feature. That's not a bug. That's what DevOps and DevSecOps is supposed to do. And you make the integrations really easy. Then all of a sudden, I mean, it feels sudden. All of a sudden, adoption of APIs have made it around the world before security got their boots on. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, I think it was Akamai or Akamai, I believe it's pronounced. Yeah. That they had run a study of internet traffic and there was some, what was the stat? So there's a few. Akamai, the one that jumps out from Akamai in particular, because they handle about a third of global web traffic. So when we talk about building to scale, these are the guys to talk to. 91% of the traffic that they handle is API traffic. So 91% of global internet traffic is API traffic. Another stat, which is a little harder to prove, it's one of the analysts who was a Gartner or Forrester, I don't remember which one, estimates that roughly 50% of APIs are completely unmanaged. Oh, wow. And I'll tell you from my experience in the field, I think that number's low, but the nature of blind spots is I don't have a denominator. I don't have a total population. So you can say what percentage of that is unmanaged. But when I talk to CISOs, when I talk to our colleagues, they tend to think that number's high. And I think it might be just because they're so used to vendors with FUD and all the BS that we've had to wade through for the last 20 years. But when I talk to DevOps leaders, they're like, oh, that's way low. Like, it's probably 80 or 90% that that are unmanaged, you know? So, yeah, I mean, those are just some of the stats. So, half are unmanaged. It's 91% of web traffic. Gartner started saying that, I think, 2017 to 2019, that by 2022, APIs will be the most common attack vector. They'll change from a relatively obscure attack surface to the number one attack surface in 2022. It doesn't surprise me. You mentioned it was either Black Hat or DEF CON. You and I were talking about this before, that you guys actually performed a quote-unquote hack live on an API, but it wasn't even a hack at all. It was actually just back to what we said. The API intended to expose itself and the API intended to give you access to business logic. And you guys actually, what, what, tell me that story. Yeah. So we've got a lot of those case studies. Actually, it was at Black Hat where I presented and the whole session was case studies. Mm-hmm. And the theme there is like experience is the best teacher, but tuition is high. So if we can learn from what happens somewhere else, you don't have to repeat the same mistakes. Like here's what we're seeing in the field. And the one that I think you're talking about, it was a, a big bank. And so it's a little less than a $100 billion bank. And if you're outside of banking, banks measure themselves by assets under their protection, right? So when somebody says, I'm a $100 billion bank, that's how much asset that they're responsible for protecting. And so it's not a U.S. bank, but that would put them in the top 50 or so of U.S. banks. So big organization. And in this particular case, one, one reason I love this case study so much is it really highlights how API security is difficult and it's solvable. And I go through in the case thing and talk about how to solve it. I know we're not going to talk product today, but in the example, what we did was they had APIs that they exposed to the outside world that supported their website and their mobile app. And they had the same flaws, both in currency conversions like FX, euros mm-hmm. to dollars or yen mm-hmm. to francs or whatever, if the franc was still a thing. And also in money movement. And there were some characteristics of the API that we were able to exploit in a logic-based attack. And those characteristics were, there's basically four. One was we were able to bypass the front-end systems that they were relying on for orchestration, you know, front-end systems and browser orchestration. So when you mm-hmm. press your button on your mobile app, it sends a query or request back to the API. And it said things like, perform this action, you know, convert dollars to euros and enforce this minimum amount and charge this fee. And we just went back to the API and elected not to charge ourselves the fee and not to enforce the minimum amount. So these things weren't actually enforced in the business logic. They were enforced on the front end. 
And so we had the minimum amount that we bypassed. We had the fee that we bypassed. There was no rate limiting on this API at all. And that was intentional mm. choice because it's a fee generating service. And they had a lot of commercial clients that did a lot of currency conversions. So like, hey, you know, the more the merrier. They didn't anticipate that we were going to run maybe 100 million. And then the fourth is very common business logic in banking, which is typically the cores will calculate currencies to something like six digits past the decimal. If you sell a dollar for a euro, you'll get something like 0.922923 euros. Okay. But in your actual account, it rounds it up or down to the nearest penny, right? So your bank account balance isn't 100.922923 dollars, right? It's penny level. So what we were able to do because we could bypass these controls is now we had cheap, free, unlimited currency conversions. And now we just needed to shop for the exchange rate that was going to give us the rounding up. Right. And so we looked at Canadian dollars and we finally found that selling British pounds for Canadian dollars gave us one pound, gave us 1.55 Canadian dollars or mm -hmm. Add a couple of decimals, 0 0.01 pounds gave us 0 0.0155 Canadian dollars, which rounds up to 0.2. We sold a hundredth of a pound. We got two hundredths of a Canadian dollar, which is give or take 40% arbitrage. And then yeah. we did it a couple million times. So we started off with, say, 10,000 pounds, and then we sold it off a penny at a time. And eventually you run out of currency to sell. So we started with 10,000 pounds. We got 20,000 Canadian dollars, but we just made conversions free. So just convert it back and sell it again and convert it back and sell it again <laughs> and convert it back and sell it again. Oh my goodness. This is a live, it's you know, about a hundred year old, give or take institution. I don't want to too much detail. So our listeners don't try to reverse engineer like who it could possibly be, but this is an old institution and they aren't having like regulatory trouble. The regulatory languages, the security program is commensurate with the size and complexity of the institution. They were concerned about API security. And so that's why we did this assessment form. And so we gave them the results and we, if it sounds familiar, like this is the plot to Superman 3 in office space, right? The salami right. slicing attack. We've known about these for decades in banking. Harry Harrison's stainless steel rat novels were doing this way back in the 70s. Right on. Exactly. So, I mean, we've known about this type of attack for a long, long time. And so we went in and we asked, okay, this is what we did. And did you see it? Now, having run SecOps, I knew darn well they didn't see it. Because essentially, we're just sloshing money back and forth between internal accounts. And it's mm -hmm. not until you have a material issue and with reconciliation or money starts to leave that you really start getting alerts. So we said, well, when would you have seen it? And they caught up with their operational risk folks and they took it away for a couple of days. And they said, OK, so here's what we found out. Whenever we empty one of the accounts that we use for currency pairs, we have to go back to the open market and buy more just like anybody else. right? So if I need more pounds, I got to go buy more pounds, whatever. And at that point, we have a manual process that does a look back for profitability because we want to see if we got enough fee income based on the amount of currency that we're keeping on hand, right? And that tells them how much they need to keep. And for this particular currency pair, which was, in this case, it was British pounds to Canadian dollars, so the small accounts, it would have been about $10 million. So about $10 million, we would have noticed that our fee income wasn't what we expected it to be, and that's when we would have known to start looking. Okay. A little bit after the fact. Yeah. Well, and so what I learned is, A, don't drain the accounts, and B, choose a bigger currency pair, like dollars to yen. Right. But as I'm scrolling, like if any of our listeners came and saw me at Black Hat, or maybe if you're going to be at InfoSec in Orlando later this month, or, and I'm, I'm going to be keynoting API World in, in San Jose, I'm going to be talking about this example. And as you're watching the screen scroll and literally seeing the Python script run, I've described the scenario. So we have a valid user account, valid username, valid password. We imported our session cookie into the direct session with the API. Mm -hmm. We ran accounts or we ran requests that we were authorized to do. We performed actions we were authorized to perform 
as this is scrolling, you like, we're stealing money. Like, I know this is wrong, but what's the hack here? Yeah, you didn't exploit technology. You didn't hack technology. You exploited business logic. I exploited business logic in a way that was unexpected. And so we didn't tear apart your mobile app and find the stored credentials at API keys, which are probably in there. We didn't crack any passwords. We didn't man in the middle anything. We just abused the logic and it responded in the way it was designed. And here we are, you know, printing money undetected. And that's what makes API security so critical and so difficult if you're relying on your legacy tools, you know, yeah. like WAFs and API gateways, they simply don't understand business logic. They were never designed to understand business logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why Gartner created as a new part of their reference architecture for the first time in December of 21, API security as a dedicated layer. So, I mean, this right just on. happened, like this is happening in real time. Yeah, yeah, no, this is good. This is good that they're catching up to it. So let me ask you this. Let's back away from tooling for a moment and go all the mm -hmm. way back to the source. I'm the creator of the API. And again, the two rules are it has to be accessible in public and it has to give deep access to business logic. That's the whole reason it exists. What can I do at design time? How do I ensure that the stupid doesn't happen? It's a great question. And fundamentally, like I drank the shift left Kool-Aid a decade ago. I'm a huge fan of shifting left. The challenge is the devs who are writing these APIs, they never set out to write bad code. They just don't know what they're doing wrong. Right. So it's a matter of getting them the feedback, the code analysis tools, you know, as early in the process as you can to help to standardize best practices and security profiles and things like that for APIs for financial services. And what we're hoping to do is sort of standardize best practices so it makes it easy for everybody to understand what a secure API looks like. Here's how you should do authentication. Here's how you should do authorization. And we see a lot of design flaws fundamentally in the APIs. But to your point about you're exposing your business logic directly to fix it, one of the curses that we've inflicted on ourselves as practitioners the last 20 years is the old version of web security. You could have your 98-pound weakling application, and as long as you put it behind a WAF, you effectively put your weakling in a bulletproof limo, Right. the devs never had to fix the app, and that right. doesn't work with APIs. So we can do all kinds of things where, well, we can create dynamic WAF rules and things like that to block it. But the real fix is to fix your API, is to fix right. the business logic. Right. Uh, so you can tell the WAF what to block, but you can't make the WAF understand what it's doing. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy. And our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things. And it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment, devices, users, software, and more, to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com slash get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash a dash tour. Okay, so the challenge then to me is not so much even a challenge about information security per se. It's not the usual challenge we give a developer to say, hey, make sure when you write this, you write it in a secure way. Don't use unbounded variables and don't use all the usual stuff you tell developers to do. Make sure you got form field validation, et cetera. This is a very different proposition. This is think through the logic of your entire thinking. It's before you've even written a line of code, you've got algorithms and you've got data flow models and you've got all these things like we're going to write code that's going to take this thing and make it do the thing to do the thing to talk to the thing to get the thing. That stage, 
where the insecurity creeps in, right? Like it's long yeah. before even a line of code is written. And I can't imagine that any amount of pen testing is really going to unearth this accurately. I mean, obviously you guys have this great example that you showed at Black Hat, but regular conventional pen testing isn't going to get you there. Exploiting the usual sorts of attack surface and code things you look for, whatever it might be, command line injection, et cetera, et cetera, that's not going to get you there. What you've really got to do is train your developers who develop APIs to stop at the business logic moment before a single line of code is written and to put on their evil hats and try to figure out how to mess with that, right? Like the end of the day, that's what we're really saying is you got to flip your evil bit on at conception time long before any code is written. Is that the right way? Yeah. And there are some things that you can do. So like the number one most common attack type against APIs right now is injection. So still cross-site scripting, SQL injection, a lot of pen testers miss it. So, I mean, you can still do a lot. And then there are ways that you can pretty easily detect design patterns and exploit patterns for things like BOLA and mass assignment, being able to escape your authorization limits and things like that. So BOLA prior to about this quarter was the number one type of attack that we saw against APIs. And that's broken object level authorization. So devs have gotten pretty good at authentication, but not very good at authorization. So you have to have a key, but once you get the key, it opens every room in the hotel, Mm, that kind of thing. And that's actually not that hard to test for. So when we do our testing and we use kind of the same credentials and set up as somebody that would do like availability testing, synthetic transactions. So we need to be able to hit it and we need credentials for it. But then we can try Can we jump bounds to get to somebody right. else's account balance and things like that? Right. And I think the most important thing is once you've kind of gotten your arms around and your head around developer intent. So there's a little bit of because every API is custom and this is where trying to create standards that proliferate as the right way to do things is going to make API security a lot easier because right now every API is a unique little snowflake, mm-hmm. which also means that you can't run like Rapid7 against and look for CVEs. Now, they still may be there that, that right. are exposed, but every business logic flaws, it's on zero day. Right. And none of the vulnerability scanners pick this stuff up. This is where the hard parts. This is really exactly what you're talking about. So there is a lot you can do to avoid the basic stuff that we see everywhere else. And then it really does become, yeah, now we've got to do some negative testing and threat modeling on your business logic. Is this what you intended to expose? And what happens if you do X and things like that? But right now where we are, just like as an industry and as society, 50% or more of APIs are completely unmanaged. We've got a lot of basics we can button up to dramatically improve the security posture before we really get into the edge cases, right? So this is like when I was at AIG, you know, we had like CISO conferences and forums and things. We'd all get together from all across the divisions. And we'd be talking about, you know, something Panda or something Bear, some advanced persistent threat. And I was always the guy who's kind of a, a pain saying, that's, guys, this is interesting. That Linux server hasn't been patched in 17 months. Right. We're worried about this esoteric advanced persistent threat thing. But you know what gets us popped is patch management, inventory, asset management, discipline, hygiene, hardening. It's the basics. And I think that's the biggest thing that I'm trying to bring to the API security space is while the technology is changing, the principles, the core principles are still the same. You need to know your assets, actors, interfaces, and actions. Who's doing what to what via what? And then shrink your attack surface, harden your attack surface, and then build a baseline of what normal behavior looks like. And then when you see a deviation from that norm, even if you don't know what it is, even if you don't that unusual behavior is your best indicator of potential breach condition. Right. But if you're not monitoring it, if you haven't rationalized your attack surface, then you don't know what normal looks like. And that's kind of where we are as as an industry is just figure out what I have first. Right, right. right. And that gets to the heart of the business logic, because in case of your example from Black Hat, 
that API was designed to be utilized, but it sure wasn't designed to be utilized 10,000 times a minute and for small transactions. There were lots of red flags had they been looking for expected behavior where they could have caught and trapped for that one. Well, I guess on the one hand, I'm really glad to hear that a lot of this is, in fact, just the basics, injection and unbound variables and whatever else it might be. Okay, fine. That's good. That's also bad, but that's its own (laughs) thing. Yes, right, right. But the fact that so much of it isn't, right, the fact that there is this business logic core at the heart of it, that even if you can fix all of the code level stuff, if you can make sure you've got all your form field validation and everything else taking place and your injection proof and the cross site and yada, 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 you do all the good things, you've still got these business logic flaws. And at that point, what you're basically describing, it's almost like I'm blast from the past here, but... I'm thinking back to 2012 when, oh, what were they calling it back then? When antivirus first started using heuristics, when antivirus first started to look at behaviors of the executable instead of the dictionary. Like they realized the dictionary-based approach was never going to work. This was long before UEBA and long before SIM. There was some cute term they had for looking for the anomalous behaviors. Yes, this executable is designed to run. Is it designed to run 30 times a minute? No, it's not. That kind of thing. We're all the way back to that model almost is what I'm hearing. Yeah, pretty much. And there are some, I think that even if you don't anticipate every possible business logic flaw or abuse case, there are some easy things that you can do to reduce the impact in the blast radius. As basically, it's like rate limiting. So even in that particular scenario, what made that one really impactful was that they didn't have any rate limiting. And that's a basic design issue. Yeah. yeah, So even if you had limited it to 5,000 requests per day from the same source using the same token, okay, you lost 50 bucks. Right. Versus 10 million. Right. Exactly. And so covering the basics, fortunately, gets you a long way. 80%, I've said this about cybersecurity for a long time, but 80% of excellence in cybersecurity is doing the basics really, really well. Mm -hmm. And it really starts with no blind spots, no assets that you don't understand what you have. And it's easier said than done. But there's a reason why the NIST model starts with identify before protect, protect, respond, recover, why the CSCs start with an inventory of assets, right? Yeah. You can't protect what you can't see. I got this analogy that I use once in a while about when I was a middle school teacher. And I used this analogy at AIG when we were you know, talking about these basics. So I used to be a middle school teacher. Now imagine I'm going to take your kids to the Houston Children's Museum, right? right? And my job is to get all your kids back home safely at the end of the day. And we're going to a common environment. We're talking about cloud security at the time. So right. we're going to a public environment. There's going to be other people's kids there. And my job is to get your kids home safely. However, I don't know all the kids' names. I don't know what they're wearing. I don't have pictures of them all. I don't know who's allergic to peanuts. I don't know who likes to play hide and seek. What's your confidence interval that I'm going to actually be able to get your kids home safely at the end of the day if I don't even know the details about what it is that I'm responsible for protecting? Right. Low confidence. And this is about cloud security, right? And this is cloud Mm -hmm. security 10 years ago, and it's API security today, right? So history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. It's the same basics and same fundamentals. Now, you do need to change tooling. Like the attackers evolve over time and your defenses have to evolve over time, right? So take it out of the computing context. The analogies I like to use is that of the Maginot line, right? So after World War I, the greatest military minds in Europe, you know, Maginot and Joffrey and others, built this massive set of fortifications all the way from Belgium down to the Mediterranean because they were never going to get caught off guard by another land-based blitz. Mm -hmm. And these are 10 to 20 kilometers deep, and it's a fantastic set of fortifications, right? And 10 years later, literally, they started in 1930, 1940, 10 years later, the attackers attacked again, and the Germans went through Belgium, and the Luftwaffe flew overhead. 
Like we're fighting the last war. So you have right. to adapt your tactics. Like they need to be able to look up. You need anti-aircraft guns now because the attackers changed. Right. But that's what's happening in the security space. We're always fighting the last war. Right. That's a good analogy. The attackers that I work with were attacking APIs specifically because their targets weren't defending their APIs. Right. right? <laughs> and that's just all the way that it always works. An old saying that I've got like 22 things I say over and over again. One of them is your defense must be informed by the offense. Right. So... This is why every year when I was a CISO, we did our security planning. We would always talk to the incident responders, right? We read the Mandiant reports. We talked to the Verizon data breach reports, all the normals to understand what's happening in my industry and in my geography and my region so that we're not focusing on DDoS like it was 2011 again. Right, right, right. But we're actually focusing on what's happening now. Right. Well, this is breach and attack simulation. This is purple teaming. This is threat informed defense, right? This is miter attack. This is you got it. all that goodness is a offensively informed defense. That's, you got it. The I and API is interface. Right. We've been talking about assets, actors, interfaces, and actions for yeah. 25 years. Right. The I and API right. is interface. It's, to your point earlier, I think you called it really well, these particular interfaces expose deep functionality. On purpose. <laughs> On purpose, by design. Right, exactly. And they change rapidly. So we need to adapt our tactics because these interfaces are different. Some of the things are the same, but the technology itself is different. Well, Chuck, this has been a great conversation. I am going to switch gears completely here, and I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest at the end of the show. If you could wave a magic wand and you could change any one thing about cybersecurity, people, process, technology, the environment, the ecosystem, the tech stack, the vendors, anything, anything you want to change in cybersecurity, but you only get to change one thing, what would that one thing be? That is a great question. It's a really hard one. The first thing that I thought was I would install a moral compass into the talented bad actors that are leveraging their skills and knowledge. Like I begrudgingly respect the technical prowess of some of these organizations mm -hmm. that operate on near nation state levels. And they have info sharing and data sharing agreements and customer support. Like they are absolute professionals, but they're stealing money and stealing data. Like they're doing unethical things, but they're doing it in a professional way. And I guess that's my one. That's the one thing that I would do is I would make them use these powers for good. Nice. A runner up would be if we could install the little matrix learning module that you could just plug in the back of your head and have developers understand security and have security people understand development and maybe have a card that would upload empathy as well, because nobody's job is easy. Right. And you can't secure that which you can't understand. So if you don't understand development practices, no developer is going to listen to you. When why would they? Right. Yeah, it's funny. At my day job, I'm CISO slash CTO, and I'm bouncing back and forth from security to development, from development to security on a regular basis. And I developed way back in the day, and I'm having to dust off a lot of those old chops to stay relevant and useful and not just come off as CISO who doesn't know what he's talking about in development land. Yeah. It's two different art forms. It's two different sports. It's two different sciences. And with very non-aligned goals in most cases, too, I would argue. And it's that last thing that I think is absolutely critical. People follow incentives. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan in a corporate setting of shared goals and aligned goals. So your CTO and CISO and CIO and head of development, they should have aligned goals. Yes. Because people follow incentives. And if security is rewarded based on stopping breaches, whatever their metrics are, and developers are rewarded based on production times and delivery dates, and they're working cross purposes, they're never going to speak the same language because they have different incentives. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Chuck Heron, CTO over at WIB, I want to thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>